Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Tuning into this week's episode of What the Politics. Today we have a very special guest with an interesting background that I'm excited to get right into. And if you are listening to this podcast, well, lucky you because our guest has the nuclear codes for the United <laughs> States military. Of course, I'm joking. Even though I did ask, I did ask what they were, and he he kind of laughed, but he didn't. <laughs> he didn't say he did not know them. Anyways, I'm gonna go ahead and let our guest introduce himself. Yes, my name is Alex Montgomery. I'm a professor of political science here at Reed College, um, and I work on a variety of different areas, primarily network analysis and nuclear weapons. And uh, what I'm working on now in terms of artificial intelligence is a new project, which I'm working on with my collaborator, Amy Nelson. Okay, let me just say this. I think you have such a fascinating background. I was mm-hmm. doing some research into some of the stuff that, that you have on your website and on, on the, the university that you work with, their website as well. And I'm like, man, you, you work <laughs> with weapons of mass destruction or kind of like policy-related policy items around that kind of stuff, and that is just... How did you even get started into something like that? Well, uh, I had a very curveball trajectory which makes sense in retrospect, but not at the time. I started out in physics as an Mm. undergraduate at the University of Chicago, um, but I was always very interested in international relations. Um, And so after I graduated, I decided to enter into an interdisciplinary study uh, rather than going into sort of a traditional discipline. So that's why I ended up at the Energy and Resources Group at Berkeley, um, where I wrote a thesis on, uh, you know, essentially why is it that we have confidence in nuclear weapons, even though we haven't tested them since 1992. So it combines the sort of extreme physical circumstances, and it's helpful to have the technical background for that, but also looking into the social science aspects of it, um, including, you know, ideas and sort of constructions about why we have faith in anything at all. Um, So, uh, and then Uh, So nuclear weapons was sort of an obvious thing for me to study uh, after that point, given the combination of these two backgrounds, which I went on to do at Stanford and both in getting a master's in sociology and a a Ph.D. in political science. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, the network part of it actually came out of Stanford in that I found the existing approaches. Most of the approaches in political science are focused on trying to explain individual action as if individuals were independent from each other and make decisions that don't really have a whole lot to do uh, with their past history or connections. So uh, I got very deeply into uh, network analysis um, and complexity uh, at that point as, as a result, as a better way of trying to understand uh, human action um, under a variety of circumstances, and particularly uh, when they're interacting with complex technology such as nuclear weapons and uh, now artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And so let's get, let's get right into, into the topic then. So one of the things that caught my eye when we were trying to research um, podcast guests for, for this episode um, was this report that you made with your, um, is it co-worker or would it be um, Dr. Nelson? Co-author. Co-author. Um, it's called the, the Rise of Futurists, Perils of Predicting with FutureThink. So let's break down what exactly a futurist is and would you consider yourself a futurist? 
<laughs> That's a great question. So a uh, futurist is someone who, as part of what they're doing professionally, uh, is engaged in thinking about uh, the future, trying to project scenarios uh, that may happen, uh, which may be based either on things which uh, particular government agencies are interested in, uh, there may be things which they themselves are interested in and try and sort of push out into the policy world, uh, or it may be um, you know, science fiction authors who are actually sometimes recruited uh, to come up with new and, and interesting uh, scenarios. Um, you know, it, I, I, as, as the, the piece indicates, that, that uh, we, we have a lot of skepticism about, uh, about the ability of futurism to predict the future uh, or to be helpful uh, just because there are so many potential traps and pitfalls uh, along the way. Um, a lot of these are sort of traditional, you know, sort of classic psychological uh, biases, but they take on very interesting aspects when you start trying to envision what the future uh, will, will look like. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, I once actually read a piece uh, by someone who was very skeptical about blockchain technology, um, which, you know, has been a big thing over the past decade or so, and particularly with respect to cryptocurrency. And the main thrust of the article is, well, these things are, you know, are, are supposed – blockchain is supposed to be sort of a fix for everything. And he goes and says, well, actually, all, many of the things which these are fixed for, we already have solutions for. Mm. Uh, we don't actually need an, to apply a new technology to things. And at the end of it, I'll, I'll see if I can remember his name later. Um, he, he, in his bio, said, whatever the opposite of a futurist is. So I'm not the opposite of a futurist, <laughs> um, but I'm just very skeptical about some of the existing approaches to uh, forecasting the future right now. So these existing approaches, would you consider the majority of them kind of like doomsday scenarios? No, no. Um, I okay. mean, doomsday scenarios are, I, I would say, are more prevalent than maybe they should be. Mm. Um in part, because, I mean, doomsday scenarios are, are sexy. They're they're interesting. I think they're very important, uh, precisely because they can highlight these very low probability but high impact uh, events. Um, and so, but there's a lot of uh, they're sort of in vogue right now. Um, you know, possibly caused by real world events these days. Um, you know, such as you know, the pandemic, um, which it's 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 funny. I was actually teaching a class called you know, on global risks, um, which we go through a number of major threats uh, now and possibly in the future, including artificial intelligence, uh, nuclear weapons, uh, the spread uh, of biological weapons. And uh, the day that was canceled because we all had to, they had to send all the students home and take up virtual learning, uh, remote learning for the remainder of the semester. The day that was canceled was the day on pandemics. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> so, I, I don't consider that too much of a loss because, you know, they all have had this, you know, experiential learning exercise instead, you know, something right. that you can't get out, out of the book. Uh, but nonetheless, things like this, um, you know, uh, and around nuclear weapons, every time North Korea tests a new missile, um, nuclear weapons come back into the press momentarily before it's crowded out by, by, by something else. Mm -hmm. So I, I think there, there's a lot of vogue for it. And I think that they are good. I think the part of the problem is that we may get too fixated on particular scenarios, particularly particular scenarios that are a little bit too interesting uh, or sexy or uh, evocative in a way. So all of artificial intelligence and autonomous weapons 
people have, you know, everyone's trying to get away from, from the Terminator as, as an analogy mm-hmm. or a metaphor of some kind, right? It's, it's so, it's such a, an attractive um, and pervasive idea that even people who like work in the field have a hard time trying to come up with something else. And that's, and this is important because autonomous weapon systems are very unlikely to look like the Terminator, um, uh, especially fully autonomous weapon systems are more likely to look like something like drones. Um, mm. There was recently a, an event uh, in Libya where there's some speculation that a, a drone was actually used uh, in an autonomous mode uh, to attack soldiers. Um, there's some debate about this, and so I, I, I actually have assigned it for, for my class today. So uh, we'll see what they think about it. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about, you highlight um, two different pathways to thinking um, with this future think. You highlight probabilistic thinking and possibilistic thinking. So do you mind kind of just breaking down those two ideas for our audience? Sure thing. Um, you know, probabilistic thinking is what people are, well, they may not be generally familiar with it, but it's not a foreign concept. Uh, mm-hmm. The idea that you look at a set of scenarios, things that might happen, uh, you consider their impact, their effects, um, you somehow assign a probability to each of them. And in doing so, you can say, okay, here's how likely it is to happen. Here's what would happen if it happened. Uh, here's a bunch of scenarios. And so here's how we should allocate our scarce resources in order to try to, say, minimize the over likelihood of, uh, of an impact. So um, um, it's – and this is uh, very helpful. It connects to a lot of very useful tools like game theory. Um, mm-hmm. One of the problem with this, though, is that often we will put in probabilities which are based on our guesses or uh, hunches rather than something which is uh, actually calculated or, or, or calculable. Um, and so uh, we, we make up numbers uh, in, in essence. Um, or alternatively, there are some scenarios which seem like they're really, really improbable, uh, and so they get disregarded. Um, so, uh, for example, the you know there's a lot of thinking done about uh, preventing uh, accidental nuclear war, right? But the concern, at least in the U.S., for quite a long time has been uh, not the well, would we accidentally use nuclear weapons? either uh, because of an accident or uh, because we thought that there was something coming in and we decided to respond to it. Um, and that's emphasizing that scenario over the scenario uh, the, the, the scenario of accidentally not responding to a nuclear attack in time. Right? So this is why there's such a tight chain uh, between the presidential decision to use nuclear weapons and the actual use of them. It's supposed to, the whole thing's supposed to happen from the first sighting of ICBMs coming in all the way to um, the president making a decision within just a few minutes uh, and then the order being carried out. Um, and so this entire system is built in an attempt to make sure that we minimize the likelihood of not responding to a nuclear attack. But this also maximizes the probability of there being an accident um, depending upon you know, who the president is or what they're thinking in a particular day or if any of the censors' readings might happen to be wrong. Um, and so, you know, you, you have to be very careful and, and uh, make sure that you don't, you know, completely disregard the accident scenario um, when, you're, when you're concerned about uh, massive ICBM attacks, which are 
you know, also vanishingly unlikely. Um, but, um, you know, so the, the difficulty here is, um, you know, coming up with probabilities for all of them and then weighing them against each other is either that you ignore some things um, or that you make up probabilities that you guess wrong. So, uh, but it's a very traditional approach to decision-making. Possibilism, uh, this is the sociologist Lee Clark who came up with this term, uh, and I really like it, is that it focuses less on the percentage chance of something happening and more on the impact itself, right? We, and asking, well, how bad could it be, right? And this is the problem, of course, is that if you end up with nothing but doomsday scenarios as a result of possibilism and you end up anchoring on those, mm -hmm. uh, which is a common psychological um, problem, then you may not be doing yourself any good. What's good about this is that there are many you know, low probability events where we can't estimate it, but it's a real problem, um, and we might want to spend at least some resources on reducing that probability, whatever it is, um, further to even less than it is already. So this is a this is decision making under uncertainty. So we say uncertainty when you don't know the impact of something uh, or the likelihood of it happening or or possibly um, both. And possibilism uh, is is in vogue now uh, with these sort of doomsday scenarios um, and worrying about uh, particular types of uh, events happening. Um, and it does avoid the pathologies that come with probabilism, which is to say, you know, you don't try to just assign or guess at the likelihood of an event, and you don't disregard low probabilities, uh, but the rest of the psychological biases, which are a problem in both possibilism and probabilism, uh, still ex exist, um, such as getting fixated on some sort of a terminator problem, um, uh, as opposed to, you know, sort of more mundane types of accidents like friendly fire accidents that might happen if you have uh, fully autonomous systems deployed. Well, I, it's kind of funny that, that you, these kind of like two scenarios, I'm just drawing uh, um, kind of like a, not a conclusion, but I'm, draw, I'm drawing um, references to a podcast episode that we had earlier with um, the department, one of the undersecretaries from the Department of Homeland Security, who, who outlines that one of the failures of the pandemic was this kind of like exact like binary thinking when it comes mm -hmm. to just like two scenarios to concentrate on and that's like where like nation states failed and where um some other uh organization like world organizations failed because there there's just like this this dependence on two you know big and vogue like you're saying doomsday scenarios when in reality it could be um, it, it could be multifaceted and and complicated so I, I just thought that was so interesting how literally we just had a podcast episode where you're echoing kind of like the same sentiments but um yeah i think emily has has a has a question for you <laughs> yeah i kind of sure. want to uh, ask if you know this type of thinking this futuristic thinking um ideology has really kind of picked up pace in the last 20 20 years i know you referenced um the obviously september 11 attacks in your um research and kind of about how you know that was kind of the inability to foresee that what happened was kind of a failure of imagination. So would you kind of almost say that that situation kind of pushed future think to the forefront of people's minds? I mean, I, I think that's certainly a major contributor towards it. Um, although I think part of the problem there is that there was also this anchoring on this particular threat of hijacking mm -hmm. airplanes. And so, right, this is why we now 
you know, have to take off her shoes at the airport and fly with fewer liquids, that there's this hyper-focus on this one very specific scenario or set of scenarios um, and possibly to the exclusion of, of other things, which, which actually might be more likely uh, mm-hmm. and, and, more, and more disastrous. Um, so I, I do think that, that this sort of like, oh, we, we, we had a failure of imagination, um, that doesn't necessarily mean we've managed to succeed in imagining um, since then. I, I think that another um, major stream uh, has been sort of the mainstreaming of science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always, you know, sort of the uh, ideas from, from science fiction um, you know, the popularity of superhero movies in the last 10 years, if you come to me as a kid and be like, so these comics, which you are reading and your, your other, you know, really nerdy friends are reading, someday everyone's going to want to see movies about this. They'll be like, you're crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, they, but, they, but these are now commonplace in offering us new ideas, uh, metaphors, and scenarios, um, you know, being played out obviously in an obviously fantastical uh, way, but often which try to sort of, in in some different ways, in, engage in this type of of future thing. So, uh, you know, there's there's obviously classic science fiction films that have been around for a long time and have already had a great deal of influence. Um, you know, Star Wars, right? The Strategic Defense Initiative. Uh, it was uh, opponents of it tried to renamed it to Star Wars in an attempt to make it seem unreal. Um, but proponents actually uh, like to, to seize upon it as being uh, indicative of some of the morality being played out, light versus dark, good versus evil. We are the good side here. Um, and types of uh, sort of metaphors and ideas uh, from popular fiction, I, I think, are, are, are deeply embedded, um, sometimes at the surface level, right, with things like the Terminator, um, but uh, sometimes it, it more just a, uh, you know, what are the what are the ideas that we can draw on? What's what's available to us um, comes out of this popularization uh, of of science fiction or and and fantasy, um, which is a whole other conversation on top of that. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I think that that events have done that, and I I think the pandemic um, is also going to produce a lot of rethinking. Now, hopefully, it'll be rethinking in a in a productive way about how do we, you know, how, how do we contain these better? How do we get out ahead of it? How can we do fat, even faster clinical trials if we have vaccines? Um, rather than getting too obsessed, like right now, over um, did you know could it have leaked from a lab or was it of natural origin kinds of things? Which seems, there's a lot of attention being paid to that right now, and I really, you know, this is this is where the you know let's go with the scenarios that are really important and have policy implications rather than the more retrospective, you know, everyone wants to know how this happened and, and find someone to blame. Mm-hmm. And and something that I'm trying to understand from, from reading this summary in this report, when it comes to the use of artificial te- intelligence, is would AI be a tool in, in trying to, to create these scenarios, and then ultimately it would be a person that would advise policy decisions, et cetera? Or is a, what, what, to what weight does AI play in policy decisions and, um, I guess, theories and, 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 yeah, really the ultimate decision when it comes to, to scenarios like these? 
Uh, that's that's a great question. That actually is not the direction that I, I thought you were uh, going with that. Uh, but 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 no no no. This is this is this is a, a good question, right? It's it's not. It, we're mostly talking the piece about uh, doing projections into the future about AI, mm. but the possibility of using AI into to produce um, different types of scenarios and try to run through them um, is a definite possibility. Um, you know, in, in that one of the great things um, about doing lots of simulations is that the more of them you can do, uh, like they're all counterfactuals. They're all they're all futuristic, right? They're mm-hmm. they're all like, well, what if what if this happened? What if that happened? Um, and if we could, you know, produce an AI which would help us think of scenarios that we wouldn't think of, right? Mm-hmm. That might be uh, very helpful. The danger, of course, comes in the question of how do we create an AI that isn't going to think like us? Um, what are the biases that we, you know, implant into the AI? Now, is this a sort of unfortunate conflation of artificial intelligence uh, with machine learning, um, which is the thing which is in vogue now? It leaves out other types of things which are also used for, like, expert systems um, and, and which are more sort of uh, human-readable. Uh, you can, you can you know, ask the, the, an expert system, which is essentially just a lot of, very carefully placed out if we if this then that if this then that statements and you can understand what went wrong with it. Uh, whereas with machine learning, often uh, the ability to read out well, why did you decide this? How did you come up with this scenario? Right? Um, a machine learning uh, wouldn't be able wouldn't be able to do that, and, and it might be very difficult to figure out uh, what exactly the biases uh, of a, any given machine learning um, model are. Um, you know, we we can do this. Uh, in, in practice, right, when we, when we look at things like facial rec- recognition uh, technologies, uh, since we most of these uh, facial re- recognition technologies for uh, quite a while were tested on a, a smaller segment of the population, um, right? So uh, pre- from, from mostly white people and, and more males than, than females. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it had a very high, hard time um, discerning facial characteristics of people who were not in those two categories. Now, catching up, we were able to discover that bias in a fairly straightforward way. But in terms of an AI helping us create new scenarios, um, trying, you know, testing the AI for bias doesn't, it's not nearly as straightforward Mm -hmm. uh, to do that, right? Because it's not sort of a, well, why don't we give it a, a novel circumstance and see what it tries to detect out of this since we're essentially asking the AI to help us write fiction. Mm-hmm. When it comes to to a new hmm, approaching war, approaching um, relationships with countries that the United States isn't necessarily have the best partnership with, let's be honest, um, does AI and this kind of like cyber, um, w- does war now take on more of a cyber approach than it would with like, Destru- like actual weapons of mass destruction, like nuclear bombs. Like, let, let, let's say, uh, do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. A- a- absolutely. Um, no, I mean, war is already um, being fought um, and has significant cyber dimensions to it. And even significant autonomy uh, and AI uh, dimensions to it. Uh, so, so, for example, over 30 countries have already deployed defensive weapons uh, that 
contain some kind of uh, autonomy. Um, so, uh, example, the, the Navy has uh, a system for uh, shooting down, down missiles um, that it deploys on its on its ships. And um, in order to do that, um, the system itself has to be able to react with machine speed to an incoming rocket attack and fire back at it. Um, and then adjust its trajectory and fire and fire again until it finally manages to to take it out. So there is that's already an aspect of it. Um, the cyber aspect is already part of it uh, now as as well. Um, I think calling something cyber war um, is not an accurate way of thinking about it. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of like separating it from everything else instead it's embedded in everything else. Uh, a broader way of thinking about it would be that it's a very significant, uh, a huge development in terms of uh, information warfare, thinking about, um, you know, attempting to confuse your adversary as to uh, what's going on or uh, sort of more deeper mechanisms attempting to uh, change public opinion uh, either at home or in, in your adversary's um, country or whatever, um, uh, with the use of various types of uh, you know cyber tools. So um, I like to think of it as as something which uh, is injected to lots of different aspects of warfare, um, and especially and also uh, allows for conflict. It, it it does provide for an additional. Uh, site of conflict, um, if, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. Another way to attack an adversary's systems, which uh, might be used uh, quite, a, quite a lot at things below the threshold of uh, what we think of as war, right, which is active people shooting at each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, ab- absolutely, both in terms of artificial intelligence and in terms of uh, cyber operations; um, these are both these are already um, prominent and, and important in war, um, right? Uh, in, so I, I mentioned this sort of this uh, drone. It's a Turkish drone, which is, I think was used maybe by Libyan forces. I'd have to check the article to to, to make sure. But the the point is is that um, this is not uh, restricted to what we think of as high tech countries either. Um, that it is uh, relatively it, it, these are relatively simple technologies um, that, of course, you know, large wealthy countries can do a great deal to invest in that. Um, but that this is something uh, like drones, which is going to be uh, very widely available um, already uh, and increasingly so in the future. Definitely. And this is going to be my last question for you. And I believe Victoria has one more as well. Um, you also highlight in your in your research, um, the classic um, hierarchs, excuse me, um, anchoring. Heroics. Yes, here. I don't know <laughs> why I can't it? say that okay. word today. <laughs> heuristics? Yes, heuristics. Thank you. I know I can say it. <laughs> um, you highlight the three classic ones, which are anchoring, availability and representativeness. Um, representativeness. So which one of yeah. those has the most possibility to produce a successful outcome. Um, you, you mean you mean overcoming those biases? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes. Um, you, I mean, you you have to deal with with all of them. That's yeah. the problem. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think it would depend largely on uh, what exactly what what what, what problem it is uh, that okay. that you're talking about. Um, you know whether. So in terms of, of anchoring, 
right? Uh, this is the heuristic that makes you um, you you have sort of an initial estimate of something, uh, and then it serves, you know, and you don't change it even when you get new information. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, the the post nine eleven problem is that there was a lot of anchoring on. You know, oh, you know, this is going to be the future. There's going to be lots of very large attacks on urban targets using airplanes like that. The probability of that will goes way up and everything else uh, goes away. The, the problem, of course, that these biases come together because that's also availability bias, mm-hmm. um, that it's the it's a it's a prior experience um, that happened. And then that and then when you anchor on that prior prior experience, um, then you start interpreting all new evidence as sort of confirming the thing that you already that you, you already thought. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know, I, I think that that that's the problem is that many of these biases uh, work together to prevent sort of clear thinking. Um, and this is this is why we this is why we have organizations. This is why we have uh, red teaming protocols where you where you actively have another group to try to disprove the thing which you the conclusion you've come up with. Um, because you know, through organizations and through procedures, we can potentially overcome uh, these, these biases, and that's that's one of the reasons why just having individuals doing um, you know scenario forecasting um, isn't great. Uh, we we want lots of different people doing it, lots of people working together on these on these things and trying to check each other's biases, and just becoming aware of them uh, is the first step to being able to solve them. Definitely. So this will be my last question. Um, what are the nuclear codes for? No, I'm kidding. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, so, um, so you're a professor, right? That's correct. So for the classes that you have, I know Emily and I just graduated and I remember from, from when we would take classes, there's usually like a set of objectives that professors, yeah. um, write down for, for what they want students to take away from, from the class. What is like a right. common objective or one main objective that, that you highlight in those, um, I, don't, I don't even know what they're called anymore, for, the, for your college students, for your classes, and what you want students to take away? Uh, learning outcomes. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, there we go. So, um, yeah, so it's, uh, most of my classes emphasize theory. Uh, what I'm trying to do, I mean, we're going to go through a lot of fun examples uh, and that's important. But what's really important is getting the underlying conceptual framework so that when student goes out into the world, that they can then apply these kinds of theories uh, to new phenomena um, where uh, and instead of just being instead of just limiting themselves to the very specific things that we're studying. So I'm teaching a course called Systems Disasters right now. Um, a lot of fun today is, in fact, weapons and artificial intelligence. Um, and what I'm trying to get the students to learn is um, about why it is that systems fail um, and focusing less on the blame the operator perspective and more on a perspective called normal accidents, which says that when the system gets too complicated and it moves too fast, you're inevitably going to have accidents in the system. I think this is particularly relevant with respect to autonomous systems because these machine learning um, you know, programs are incredibly complex. We can't even understand them. Um, and if we connect them to other important systems, then they become tightly coupled and will probably lead to accidents. So um, I would want them to be able to learn about these different theories, you know, that it's the system, it's the structure of the system. In some cases, 
Uh, it's what, what uh, Charles Crow called executive malfeasance, right? That, in fact, somebody does know what's going on in the system and is deciding to let it burn anyway. Um, to think about production pressures, which people are under, which might, might lead them to make decisions about continuing something rather than saying, I think we're going to have an accident here, folks. We should stop and try to figure out uh, what's going on. And uh, ideally is that they take these theories, those are, the one, those are some of the ones for this class, and when they go and read in the paper about uh, some sort of new accident that's happened, that they are attuned to the con- picking out kinds of things in the reporting that would enable them to think about, well, what really caused this? Um, is it you know, is it something about how uh, how trains, you know, if 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 a, if a train derails, right? Is this actually about um, the operator who did something which they shouldn't have done? Is it about uh, the regulatory apparatus which should be making sure that that the rails and the trains are up to spec, um, or is it just sort of the general socioeconomic political circumstances uh, which lead for uh, an emphasis in funding of road transport over rail transport. Uh, so trying to think of these things on, on, on multiple different levels. And I was very gratified. One of my students from the course, which was interrupted in the middle, the global risk course, said that one of the great things about being in the course at the, during the pandemic is that she was able to understand so many of the things that were going on in the pandemic so much better because she could apply all of these theories and gain a lot of insights into why exactly were there failures? Why is the CDC uh, so stuck on this idea of fomites instead of it being aerosols, mm-hmm. um, and and so on? So uh, that's 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 what I hope is is that it gives them more tools and more perspectives to look at the world. Well, fascinating, definitely. and I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. I know our audience members are, are definitely more intelligent than Emily and I are, so I'm sure they're <laughs> screaming a whole bunch of questions, but you know what? We, we appreciate you taking the time to speak with us and, and breaking down kind of like that, that um, the report, and we'll link the report you know below. Terrific. Well, thank you so much. All right, awesome. Thank, thank you so you much. So much. Mm-hmm. All right, everyone, that's going to wrap up this episode of What the Politics. Of course, you can always find episodes of What the Politics at WNCT.com under the Features tab on the WNCT Podcast Network and, of course, wherever else you listen to your podcast. I think today was a really great conversation, and it kind of tied in with a previous podcast that we did, like Victoria said earlier, kind of tying into the origins of the pandemic and not just looking at things from, you know, one perspective or two perspectives, but really playing out those scenarios in different ways with different ideologies is really the way to go about things, especially like our guest said, with this future thinking, with this futuristic ideology. So the article that we were referencing, this entire podcast is called The Rise of the Futurist, The Perils of Predicting with Future Think. And that is, of course, written by Alexander H. Montgomery and Amy J. Nelson. We are going to link that report below. So if you guys want to get more in depth into what this report is talking about, we will link that for you guys below. So please feel free to read more into that. Thanks so much. And we'll see you next week.